Welcome back to Psychic Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. I want to thank you for listening. As always, I appreciate all your support and love uh, from all over the world. And once again, I want to remind you to show your support. Give us uh, five stars on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Uh, review us on whatever platform you're listening to us on. I know it's not always stars, five stars that they use, but that helps us in those algorithms they use to get us in those recommended lists and helps us get us more listeners and reach more people. Um, so that's really going to help us out. If you want to support, show your support in another way, we just launched our Patreon page. Now the tiers for the Patreon page. Now I talked about patronage before. We shifted from using Podbean's patron service to an actual Patreon account. Our Patreon um, account uh, has different tiers. The first tier is Encyclopedia Brown, Boy Detective. That's one to five dollars per month. You'll get patron-only posts and messages. Uh, the next tier is Jessica Fletcher from Murder She Wrote. Uh, that's going to be six to ten dollars a month. Uh, you're going to get early access to content, to content, patron-only voting power. So I may do a poll to ask people uh, what topic the next uh, podcast will be about. Um, and then the next tier is going to be from eleven to $20. That's the Veronica Mars tier. You're going to get access to the once monthly Dumber Than a Sack of Hair podcast. It's a funnier, more comedic podcast that covers stupid crimes. Uh, It's both stupid crimes by smart people and stupid people who somehow get away with smart crimes. Um, And for between 21 and anything above $21 $21 a month or anything above, excuse me, $50 a month, anything above $50 a month. That's the Hercule Poirot, greatest detective in the world tier. You're going to get a shout out on the podcast and a Psych Your Crime t-shirt, everything in those other tiers, obviously. So show your support. It would really, really, really help me out. Um, but once again, I just really appreciate it. I never thought that people in countries outside the United States would ever listen to this podcast. I thought maybe I would do a handful for fun. That's it. Maybe a handful of people would listen. And instead, it's just really grown and people all over the world have listened. So I really, really appreciate it. And I will keep making it. Um, the reason I didn't really post last month is because I was really working on this Patreon page and uh, content for that. So once again, I appreciate you. That Dumber Than a Sack of Hair podcast, I will post a teaser to that and it will come out on the 15th of each month. For those of you who do uh, join that Veronica Tears level, Veronica Mars tier level of patronage to hear that podcast. Um, So eventually, I do want to hit a certain level of patronage that'll allow me to post weekly. And if I can hit that, uh, then that Veronica Tears level will, um, Veronica Mars uh, Tears level will allow me to do two Dumber Than a Sack of Hair podcasts. So I'd like to move up from uh, being able to post twice a month to posting four times a month. And then I would be able to post four of those comedic podcasts for you guys. So uh, that's why I've been absent. And so that's what's been going on. So just to give you that update, uh, 
this month, uh, this uh, podcast this week um, is about uh, the Jorgen. I'm probably going to butcher it. This is a Swedish crime, so please excuse me if I butcher the names of the towns or of the people's names. But it is the Jorgen Lundblad murder, um, which took place in Sweden. And it deals with something that is called, I've actually talked about this before, in a different context, it's called uh, narcissistic entitlement. When we hear about narcissism, the psychological condition in which people become excessively self-centered, it's almost given that we expect narcissists to be high on entitlement. In their relationships, work, and general dealings with others, psychologists argue the narcissistic expect special treatment. Moreover, the narcissistically entitled think that good things will come their way because they are deserving of favorable outcomes. In competitions, they always expect to win, and in the measures of their ability, we are told they expect the highest of scores. However, what if some of those entitled individuals actually deserve what they expect? It is possible the people who figure they'll win have that belief because they've won so often in the past. Maybe the high test scores come to expect measurable success because they've always gotten good grades. Perhaps celebrity musician figures that they'll win awards and accolades because they're really good at what they do. Unfortunately, the great and talented who start out reasonably normal on the entitlement dimensions may fall prey to narcissistic bubbling. The great opera singer who worked her way to the top of her profession now expects that she'll get the best table at exclusive restaurants or superior service at a high-end designer stores. However, there are those who manage, even in the case of accolades, to remain humble. Believing also that there may be more to narcissistic entitlement than we may think, the University of Texas at Dallas psychologist Robert Ackerman teamed up with Michigan State personality psychologist Brent Donnellman to investigate the subtleties of narcissistic entitlement. They believed that it was important to identify normal entitlement in which people base their high self-esteem on their accomplishments. This is different from narcissistic entitlement, which occurs when people's high self-appraisals are unrealistic and they don't really deserve the victories and attention that they crave. People whose entitlement is in the normal range have high self-esteem based on actions that are truly deserved. They expect to win not because they think that all others should bow down to their greatness, but because they typically do win. Normal entitlement, we might further argue, applies to specific areas of abilities. You may expect to win chess because you usually do, but have no such illusions of grandeur about beating your favorite cousin at pool. The entitled narcissist doesn't make these distinctions, but instead thinks every enterprise should end in success. Psychologists believe that at least some of the entitled narcissist's expectations of victory and special treatment mask an underlying sense of inferiority. Go beneath the surface and you'll find that instead of having a solid, high sense of self-esteem, the so-called vulnerable narcissist feels inadequate. The show of grandiosity is just that, a show. The grandiose narcissist honestly believes and thinks that they are better than others and so their self-esteem has no such cracks. 
Even the entitled narcissist can expect special treatment and maintain high self-esteem without stepping on the rights of others. For example, an entitled shopper might believe that she shouldn't have to stand in line because she's so important. However, if she's stuck behind someone else in a slow checkout lane, she would still wait her turn. As you can see then, narcissistic entitlement isn't a unitary concept. To tap into its dimensions, Ackerman and Donnellan used a scale, the Psychological Entitlement Scale, or PES, which relates to feelings of high self-esteem. People score on the PES predict their tendencies. To take candy from children, feel they deserve a salary, or their lack of empathy in close relationships, and their expressions of aggression. However, PES scores aren't linked to neuroeroticism, the tendency toward emotional stability. So obviously people that know there are certain celebrities that people believe have narcissistic, narcissistic entitlement. People talk about Kanye West in this context a lot. Uh, celebrities who like maybe great actors and they go into music and their music is questionable. Athletes that go into acting or music um, there's an expectation that, oh, I'm going to be fabulous because I can do one thing, I can do another. That may, may or may not be narcissistic entitlement. That's going to be dependent on this scale. Like, um, your tendency, whether you would or would not take candy from children, whether you would believe that you're starting out, you're crossing over into this other genre. Say you're an athlete, you're crossing over into hip-hop, you believe you deserve top-tier pay, for an album, even though this is your first hip hop album, your lack of empathy to people around you, that's gonna determine whether you really have narcissistic entitlement. Not just because it seems like you're a nerd or that you seem too entitled. Um, those entitled parents forums on Reddit, that's full of people with narcissistic entitlement. That mom who refuses to wait in line, uh, one thing that comes to mind immediately is the multiple stories of moms who steal wheelchairs from people so their child doesn't have to walk. Their perfectly physically fit child who who just they just don't want their child to have to walk anymore. Oh, my kid is tired. Give them your wheelchair. While this person has a broken leg or this person has a real disability and you want to take their wheelchair from them so your kid does that is narcissistic entitlement. Straight up. That right there is what they're talking about because they literally are stealing from the disabled. They have no compassion or empathy for them. They are super aggressive. That hits everything on the PES scale. So that is what they're talking about with narcissistic entitlement right there. So that is what we're looking at today. So on October 23rd, 2012, 18-year-old Maria Lundblad reported her father, Jaren Lundblad, missing. Yaren was a millionaire inventor and landowner who lived on a dairy farm. Yaren rented the land adjacent to his farm to other farmers, creating a very friendly and tight-knit community where everyone knew each other well. That's why it was so surprising when she said she hadn't seen him since August 31st of that year. For almost two months, Maria stated that the day before, her father and sister Sarah had had a fight about continuing to lease the land adjacent to the farm. Sara wanted some of the land for herself and her boyfriend, 
Martin Tundblad. Yaren didn't like Martin and was convinced he was a gold digger based on the fact that his family had a large amount of debt. Sara and Martin began to renovate Yaren's apartment in Kinma just one week after he was last seen. Sara got permission to start throwing things in the apartment out and start moving building materials in on September 5th, 2012, just a couple of days after she called her sister and mother in tears claiming her father was missing, but days before she reported him missing officially on September 10th. Sara told police that her father had approved of the move and that they only went ahead because they claim they wanted to be out of Martin's parents' home. After September, over September and October, the couple moved Yarin's belongings out and remodeled the inside with new floors and wallpaper. They also moved all of Yarin's paperwork from the Styla farm to the apartment, but they did not finish their renovation. As police did not believe they got approval due to have Yarin dislike Martin. Maria told police that her sister could have killed her father, given how aggressive she could get when she did not get her way. Sarah told police her father got in his car and drove to Kilmoth and just disappeared. The detective felt that Sara and Martin were not being honest. She felt it was like pulling teeth trying to even get basic information from him. Sara even tried to say that her father was punishing her by disappearing and making her fend for herself. In November, they got together a large group of volunteers to search for what police now believed would be Yarin's body. The search was organized by the group Missing People Sweden. They had helped the police find the body of a girl that had been missing for two years. Teresa Peng was a former model turned leader of the local chapter of Missing People Sweden. She was frustrated that the search had started in the woods surrounding the farm, but not on the vast farm itself. But they did not find anything, even though they had searched several square miles. Sara had a degree in forestry, as her father thought this would help her run the real estate and forestry empire when he died. Martin and his father lived on one of the local farms that was rented from him. Martin's mother lived with his father Oka after he tried to get her Martin's father left, excuse me. Martin's father left his Martin's mother left his father Oka after he tried to get her to co-sign a 15 million krona or 1.5 million dollar loan. Dude, I would leave too. She felt she was more a maid than an actual wife or partner. The Turnblad farm was heavily mortgaged due to Oka's bad business sense. Many people felt that Martin lacked humility and that he had a large amount of arrogance that made people uncomfortable. He also lied often about small unnecessary things no one really cared about. So Yaren had a good reason to mistrust him which is why he made Sara put everything in his name. 
she had to sign all of her assets over. This was in hopes that Martin would lose interest once he realized that Sara didn't actually own anything. Sara told police that this was for tax purposes though. Then he changed his will. Everything was originally left to Sara. He planned to go into business with her and then leave everything to her. He then changed the will, splitting everything equally between his two dollars. He also added a common stipulation that all inherited income and property and any income made from inherited property had to be separate income from any partners. So any spouses could not access any income made from any inherited businesses. This is not something that's common in the US for those of you who are, are not in the United States, listeners from the US. Um, in the US, when you inherit a business, you can pretty much do whatever you want with it. Um, if you're a married person and you inherit a business from your parents when they pass away, if you choose to keep the business and run the family business, it's up to you whether that business becomes a marital asset. If you want to keep it for yourself as your own asset, that's up to you. If you want to make it a marital asset and you want it to make it between you and your husband, that's up to you. So this was news to me that this is a common thing in Europe that you can write into your will that it's not allowed to be a marital asset and that, that the business and all the profits from it can only go to your child, that their spouse cannot enjoy any of those profits, that they, they can't put their hands on them. I think that's wonderful. I think it actually helps deter gold diggers, and I think people should do that and put that in their wills here in the United States. Um, he, Sarah was also appointed Maria's financial guardian. Yaron even asked his wealthy aunt to remove Sarah from her will to ensure that Martin did not get anything from anyone in the family, convincing her that Sarah could not be trusted. Martin did not find out for quite a while about the fact that Sarah was basically destitute and Yaran was prepared to disinherit Sarah if it actually came down to it. On November 2nd, Sarah had a nervous breakdown. She sought a psychologist's help to help her deal with all the stress. It turns out that Sara was running Martin's father's farm as well as parts of her father's farms and business. Sara would get no money until her father was declared missing. So in order to protect this missing man's rights, the Kamma County Chief Guardian's committee appointed his neighbor, Uncastin Simostan, as the guardian of his estate on October 26, 2012. She had had some experience as she helped elderly neighbors with estate planning. She had also leased some of her land to Okatanblad, Martin's father, in the past. Her job was to determine Yaren's assets, including properties, machines, buildings, vehicles, stocks, personal and business accounts. Submit this to the committee, and then on top of that, she had to take control of the day-to-day -day of Yaren's businesses, such as paying bills and the basic upkeep of such businesses. 
However, it was not going to be easy. Asada and Martin did not seem to understand that it was not their money or farm to spend our youths. Sada and Martin had moved into the main farm and given the Tunblad family use of the machine shed, taking spaces away from actual tenants who had been paying rent. As the guardian, Uncastine had to call Oka and let him know he had to move his machines. He replied it was up to Sada since she actually owned half of the farm. He was completely unaware she owned nothing. The conversation quickly turned ugly, with Oka stating that Mads Robali, someone who was one of the tenants, was refusing to sign a termination of his lease. This was a shock as his lease did not end until March and he had a long-running friendship with his landlord Yarit. She could hear Martin in the background screaming. She refused to meet with him as the estate was not his business and had nothing to do with it. A few minutes later, he drove up to her house, burst into her home without knocking, and sat down at her kitchen table, ranting and screaming, claiming that he had found Mons in the main house going through Yaran's papers, and that was really why they wanted to evict him. It was bizarre, and it accomplished nothing. In reality, they wanted to evict him so that they could give his father, Oka, Mod's farm. Also, the reason that Martin was so irate is because by Sarah losing the ability to make any financial decisions about the farm, it meant that Martin could not merge Sarah's family's farm and his family's farms together with the other parcel of Mads as well with Martin's father running everything. This was now another one of his father's failed dreams. So Martin began spreading rumors about Unca, about Uncastin, all in an effort to discredit her as it would not be long until she discovered that Sarah had been transferring hundreds of thousands of krona from her own and then her father's business accounts to Oka Tumblr, all without collateral or IOU. She didn't ask questions, just blindly did what she was told. Her father, finding out about her personal loans to Oka, coincided with her being removed from her aunt's will. Over a six-month period, she transferred over half a million krona, or $60,000, to Oka. On October 3, 2012, Bika Mill paid Sara a 1.5 million krona or $180,000. It was part of a, a, a contract that her father had with them. After the contract was paid out, she took the payment owed to her father and transferred 700,000 krona or $84,000 of it to Olga. Later in the winter, she sent another 300,000 krona, or $36,000, to Oka. Obviously, this is incredibly suspicious, especially when you then figure in the fact that she purchased 400,000 krona, or $48,000 worth of farm equipment from Martin and Oka. This was damning. Within a year, just like her father predicted, they completely picked her pockets dry 
and yet their farm still turned a six-figure loss. Sarah even asked us her father's safety deposit boxes at one point. Matson bragged to people about all the money he saw during those visits, saying he had never seen so much money before in his life. They didn't empty the boxes out, just took all the krona, our Swedish currency. Police were shocked to discover a document that showed Godin's signature a week after he supposedly disappeared. So really, they expected people to believe he left, came back to an, act, an annual company meeting, and then left again? This is the point where police felt they had enough to believe it might be a homicide. So they got search warrants for the Skyla farm and wiretaps for the phones of Markham and Sarah. Matson seemed most focused on the dog. Matson spent much of the time complaining about the guardian and the tenant that he wanted to get rid of. At one point, he was caught on a wiretap threatening to kill Okasi. It wasn't until 2014, after Matson and Sarah had a son, that the truth came out. Missing People Sweden decided to look back into Jaden Lundblad's case. When Martin Tundlad heard this, he inserted himself into their investigation, feeding them again the story of Mog, the crazy tenant that they wanted to evict. Then he became infatuated with Teresa Tang, the regional leader of missing people. As he spent more and more time around the group, he became more and more obsessed with her. She knew if she entertained his advances and cultivated a rapport, she might be able to get him to confess. Eventually, one night, after hours of phone conversations over the course of several days, he showed up at her home. She, unsure of what to do, let him in. Martin thought, what, Netflix and chill? They'd hang out for a while and eventually sleep together? So she decided to play a call and hear him out. She even told him, right out. When he asked if she thought he was involved in the murder, yes, I know you did it. After a few hours of back and forth, he sat down and told her everything. Sato wanted it to look like an accident with one of the farm vehicles, but couldn't bring herself to do it. So she asked Matsun to shoot her father and then bury him. Matsun took one of his father's shotguns and shot Yarin in the face at the Karma apartment. Matsun said it wasn't like a movie. One of Yarin's eyes flew out of the socket, and that was what haunted it to, his, to this day, his eyes. Matsun and Sala had taken the body to a flatbed trunk after wrapping it in a tarp. This is why they renovated the bedroom of the apartment to cover their crime. Eventually, Mopson took Teresa where, showed Teresa where he hid the body on the map, under a border well on the Tonblad farm. Not Yadin's farm, but the Tonblad farm, where Opa lived, Mopson's father. They were arrested, tried, and convicted. And on January 20th, 2015, Martin Tundlad and Sarah Lundblad were given 18 years due to the fact that the judge felt the shooting allowed Yaren to go quickly 
and therefore did not feel a qualified for Sweden's life sentence. Sarah was disqualified from inheriting because just like in the United States, you cannot profit from your crime. Olga, Martin's father, went bankrupt. Most unfortunate in all of this is the fact that their son ended up in foster care when no family members were willing to care for him. And I get that you're angry and pissed off that your sister killed your father, but you can't punish your nephew for that. That's disgusting. So that's it for this week's crime. Join us next week when we look into a the case of the perfect all-American girl next door who, when, when a change in the law causes her to do the unthinkable. Until then, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.